this scene of candles is going to change one more time. Uh, This coming Saturday, Christmas Eve, this middle candle, the Christ candle, will be lit. Um, But not yet, it's not, because we're still waiting. And this is what Christmas is about. It's all about waiting, and it's incredibly difficult to wait. When, When I was in probably fifth or sixth grade, it was Christmas Day, And my older brother made a a comment just sort of in passing, and the comment has stuck with me. Uh, It's it's really uh, an important memory for me. He just said in passing, and again, I was young, you know, 10, 11, 12 years old. He said, I wonder when Phil is going to have his meltdown. (laughs) And he said this as if everybody knew, you know, it was on the schedule. It was just on the calendar, and it was just going to happen. And I, I didn't know it was on the calendar. I didn't know it was on the schedule. And, and I said, I said, well, what do you mean? And he looked at me and said, what do you mean? What do I mean? As if, of course, you know, this is going to happen. And, and we had this discussion and the discussion was, uh, you, you, you always have a meltdown at Christmas. And I thought, you know, I, no, I, I don't. And I don't ever remember doing that. He said, well, don't you remember last year? Yeah. Right before the meal. And I thought, well, I mean, yeah, that was last year. And he said, and then when you didn't get that thing the year before, and, and he rattled off like three or four years in a row, he had it memorized, and he knew that, you know, it's like clockwork. I mean, it's Christmas, Phil's going to have a, have a fit. He's going to pitch a fit. And it's going to affect everybody and the whole mood of the house, and it's just going to be a thing. And at that moment, I just, you know, his evidence was, he had just a preponderance of it. Um, it was so strong that I just had to say, you know, well... I mean, I can have it right now if you want. <laughs> and I remember reflecting on that, not that day, of course. On the spot, it was a little hot in the room for me to ponder it. But in reflection, I thought, well, if, of course, of course I had a meltdown. I mean, we are pointing toward this day for weeks and weeks. The pressure that gets built toward and put on this day uh, anybody, any sane person would have a meltdown. Of course, I was the only one in my family who had one, but the waiting, the waiting was more than I could handle. The day could not meet the expectations. Advent, Advent if it's about anything, it's about, it's about waiting. It's so much about waiting that we recreate waiting again every year. You have to wait, we have to wait, kids especially have to wait Wrapped presents. How many of you have wrapped presents under your tree right now? How many of you put them out long before Christmas? See, it's just the cruelest thing in the world (laughs) to do to kids is to say, this thing, it's got a tag on it, it's got your name on it, and you cannot have it. (laughs) And you cannot even know what it is. In fact, you get to ponder and dream and consider what it could be for days on end. So that when you open it, you will feel the crushing disappointment (laughs) that it is not what you thought it could be. This is how we teach them about life. And when we do this, of course, you know, a kid has a meltdown. You can tell them a little bitter about the whole thing. So many hopes and dreams are pinned on that day because it is about waiting. And we build in waiting to the Advent season Because that's exactly what Christmas is about. From the very beginning, Christmas was about waiting. And it is still about waiting. We try to put ourselves in the posture of the Israelites, the children of God, waiting for a Messiah. And when Luke, the physician and the historian, begins to tell the story of Christmas, 
he does so with waiting in mind, and he roots it in a moment in history which teaches us that there has been many days that have come, years, decades, and centuries that a nation, a people, have been waiting. And so he begins with these words, Luke chapter 1. Immediately, as a historian, he roots it in a moment in time in history when Herod was king of Judea. Now, when Luke writes these words and he's describing what happens in the first century, we are 700 years past the moment in time when Isaiah prophesied the birth of the Messiah. When Isaiah, in poetic, prophetic language, describes what would happen when the Messiah would come, would be born not just during that season, but the season of his ministry and the epic or the age that would follow it, the kingdom would come. Isaiah describes it in graphic, picturesque, beautiful detail. We've been talking about it for weeks now. And when this moment in time is set in history, it is, as we said, seven centuries later that God would move on the quiet hills of Judea and bring word to Jesus' future family, that this is going to come to pass. And he just starts by saying, well, there's a moment in time this happened. And then we get introduced to a couple. There was a Jewish priest named Zechariah, and he was a member of the priestly order of Abijah, and his wife Elizabeth, Zechariah and Elizabeth. They, they play a, a supporting role in the story, but Luke begins there because, again, he's going to tie in waiting with the entire Christmas story. And so he mentions this couple, and waiting is central to their life. It is front and center in their story. And Luke tells us why. He says this. They had no children because Elizabeth was unable to conceive. And they were both very old. One verse in the first chapter of Luke. And in this verse, you can feel the pain of a couple who had been waiting and expecting that God would bless them with a child. This is what God does to people who are good and follow his ways. And they find themselves childless, and now they are very, what? It changes, doesn't it, what you think old is. But this is biblically old. And so you know that they're, well, they're really old. And they have not been able to add to their family from the moment that they were wed. Now, the common cultural assumption would be that God was displeased with Zechariah and Elizabeth or that there was something wrong in their life or that uh, the understanding that God blesses those who are in deserving of blessings with children. But Luke dispels that quickly. He says, before he tells us this, he says that Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes careful to obey all the Lord's commandments and regulations. And he does this on purpose. In fact, these two verses are next to each other in his story. And he wants you to know, in other words, look, there's no blame. They just have to wait. They're in a waiting stage. In fact, they're probably in a place where they're no longer waiting, where they had just simply given up. Some of you are in that spot. Maybe not about this issue, but other things in your life, a relationship that has gone sour, hope for something to shift or change, or God to fix something that is unfixed at the moment. 
Luke shows us that in the same story with these people, these people, Zechariah and Elizabeth, that these two things coexist, that they, they love the Lord, they're trying their hardest, they're walking the path, and yet God has not given them the very thing, more than likely, the thing that they wanted deeper than anything. In other words, everyone waits. Everyone. doesn't matter whether you're holy and righteous or uh, off, the, off the path. Everyone waits. And it makes me wonder, and it makes me ask more often these days than any other time in my life, the question that I struggle with is this. Why does God make us wait? Why does he do it? I don't understand it. I wish I had an answer, but I don't. It seems to me, it seems to me that it would have been so helpful if God had said to Zechariah and Elizabeth, hey, look, here's the deal. It's going to be a long time. Just do your thing, but your day's coming. I mean, how much pain, how much sorrow, how much angst, how much worry, how much shame, how much judgment would they have escaped if God had just whispered in their ear, look, don't, don't even tell anyone, but your day's coming. I know, it's not gonna come when you want, but it is gonna come. And it seems to me that if God had done that, it would have saved so much, so much unnecessary pain in their life. If we're honest, then we'll admit this. Waiting seems like an unnecessary and avoidable waste of time. You could fill in a lot of things in that last few words of this sentence. It seems like unnecessary and avoidable pain, unnecessary and avoidable uh, doubt and lack of faith or discouragement. Waiting seems unnecessary and avoidable. I don't know if you've ordered some things for your Christmas season. Most of us shop from the comfort of our living room or laptop. We get, you know, all kinds of things we've ordered online. Whenever I check out with Amazon, you know, I go through the process and sell, you know, send this to my house. It always gives me a choice. It gives me a choice. You can have it, you know, Tuesday, or if you want, you can wait and get it Thursday. And I've always seen that and I thought, who picks Thursday? <laughs> Why would anybody do that? I don't understand why they would even make that an option. It must be just, there's somebody doing a doctoral thesis and they've made them put this in there as an option just to see who picks it. But never once have I said, you know, I don't need it Tuesday. Even if I don't need it Tuesday, I want it Tuesday. I don't know why anybody would say, you know, all things being equal, it's fine if I wait. Of course, no, no. Now is better, earlier is better. Of course, it could be later than Thursday, and then you're in trouble. So no, send it now. We can get to you today. Great, bring it now. It can be on your porch before you click buy. <laughs> and now these days, I can order something on Tuesday and get it Tuesday, and I think, I mean, I, I can't imagine the logistics behind making that happen, but I'll take it. That's what I want. And that's what we do. You, you know this is the case. It seems unnecessary and avoidable waiting does. I mean, when you're at the store and there's multiple lines or you're somewhere, anywhere, it doesn't matter, and there's multiple lines of people waiting on the same thing, you do the same thing that we do. And Donna is an efficiency expert. And so she, she can scan the lines and she can predict which line is going to move faster. And she does this in just a nanosecond. And when she does this, she's looking at, you know, what, how much is in somebody's cart, whether they look like they have their stuff together. It's going to take that person a while to find their checkbook or, you know, they're going to, you know, this is going to take a while. So she makes this, all of these calculations, thousands of them in about 
three seconds and then picks a line. And then you know what she does. She watches all the lines. And if she finds out that she was in, she, she chose the wrong line, this is a problem. This is a problem. So occasionally she has said to me, you know, she's whispered in my ear, go wait in that line. <laughs> I think it's moving quicker. And I'll say, but you've got the cart. I, why would I do that? And so, of course, I no longer ask that question. I just go wait in that line. And, and then, then the lines are in a race and it's, it's entertainment. It's efficiency entertainment. Why? Why would you, why would you not do that? Because waiting, of course, is, it feels to us unnecessary and completely avoidable. And of course, those are tried examples, aren't they? They're things that don't even matter, really. But what we're talking about when we discuss waiting is this space between me knowing what I want, maybe even what I need, before that thing is fulfilled. And sometimes it's a a short amount of time. Sometimes it's a long amount of time. Often I have no control over it. I don't get to click a box and say, no, bring it Thursday. Uh, You know, Lord, answer this prayer Thursday instead of Friday. If I have a choice, that's when I'm going to have it, earlier than later. But there is a space. And most of the things you're waiting for, if we're beyond the trite examples, They aren't a package or the thing to come or for the line to go quicker. They're things that you want, that you know all things being equal are good for you. And they're not selfish things. They're things that you desire deeply to connect more thoughtfully with people, to have a career that makes a difference, to be able to use your resources to impact the world. Most of the things that you want are good things, not selfish things. I know you and I know your hearts and the things that you do in this world are unique and strong and powerful, and they change the world in many ways. But that space in between, between you knowing what is good and probably what is best, and it being fulfilled, will often, in that space, that's the waiting space, often there's somebody or something or a circumstance that is in the way. And whatever it is that is in the way, it's a situation, it's another person, it's somebody not lining up with your agenda or somebody having a will of their own and going off rogue, whatever it is, ultimately, we end up laying it at the feet of of God. And the reason we do is because well, it's, it's a problem. One of our, our most foundational and deeply held beliefs is this. When we consider all of this, we know and we understand that God is, is sovereign. We believe this. We believe that if God created all of this and he is at work in our hearts and he's at work in the world, our foundational belief is that God is bigger than us wiser than us, smarter than us, and that he's in control. That's what it means that he's sovereign. It's the way Paul said, in God we live and move and have our being. Uh, All things are in God and everything flows from God. And so when we find ourselves waiting, on any given day we can blame a crowded store or we can blame 
a lazy wait staff for not getting our food on time, or we can blame somebody else for not behaving the way we would prefer them to behave. But ultimately, the issue is this. We blame a sovereign God for not orchestrating the events of our lives in such a way that waiting, well, it brings about some bitterness and some hardness and some distance. We're waiting on a lot, us in this church and the people that watch online and part of this community. We asked in the e-news what we're waiting on and uh, I was overwhelmed with the number of responses that I got. We are waiting on so much. There's some of us in this room and listening online that are waiting on healing for God to show up and take care of something that only he can take care of. We're waiting on test results. We're waiting on scans to tell us whether the treatment was effective. We're waiting on wandering kids that are trying to find their way back to God that don't seem to be making any efforts to get back to that path. We're waiting on God to direct us. What's next in our life? What direction would he like for me to go? How would he like for me to use my time or my energy? Where is my career headed and how can I bring it more in line with what he wants? These are good things that we're waiting on. And they're questions that keep us awake at night or poke at us and bring us to our knees and allow us to seek God in very unique ways. Some of you are making big decisions that will direct the course of your life and you're asking for God to lead you and show up in powerful ways. So many in our church are waiting on reconciliation, a relationship that is broken, it seems beyond repair, that needs to come back together. Family and friendships. Some of us are waiting on issues that appear to be unsolvable. Some in our church are waiting on brand new family members, kids and grandkids. Some are waiting on family to arrive so that they can enjoy the holidays with them. And some are waiting to see what happens in the next year with aging parents. We are waiting on so much. And I heard from many of you about the, the issues facing our culture. Some of you are waiting on civility to return. Some of you are waiting on peace to fill the earth. Many of you are waiting or couch this desire for these things to happen on Jesus returning. That he would finally come back. Whatever you're waiting on, I'm pretty sure you could look a few seats to your right or to your left and there's somebody that's waiting on the same kinds of things that you're waiting on in our church. And when we're waiting on these things and we're waiting on so much and yet waiting seems like it's unnecessary and avoidable, then something happens to our relationship with God. This is a recipe for doubt and distrust. It's a recipe for distance with God, for a faith that is kind of anemic or ignored. It's a recipe for us keeping God at an arm's length because the last thing we want to do is trust a God that takes us through things that are unnecessary and avoidable. And so we kind of check out of faith and decide, you know, I don't want to leave it all together. I'm not ready to not believe anymore, but I sure don't know if I trust a God that makes us wait on so much. And if you feel that tension, then you're not alone because in the emails I received, I felt that deep tension. 
So do me a favor. Think about what you're waiting on and the people that you're in community with spiritually. And take a deep breath and breathe it out. And know this, that when the scriptures say, be patient and wait for the Lord to act, that you are not alone. I don't know why God makes us wait. I don't know why. And I don't know what God does while we wait. But something is happening while we wait. And apparently, whatever happens, it can only happen in that waiting space in between. And you know this is true. We just don't want to lean into it, admit it, or live it. That there is something different when we're waiting. Uh, We're not moving. We're not in action. We're not taking care of business. We are simply inert, inept, and impotent. And God does his thing. And I don't know exactly what he does, but I do know that waiting seems to be integral to how he shapes us and how he forms us. And that the waiting space is so unique that there are some things that only happen in that space. And while it seems like us to be a waste of time and avoidable pain, when God puts us in a waiting space, well, he sees it differently. When you read the whole of scripture, you see it on almost every page that God makes us wait. And so if you're waiting now, maybe you'll take a little comfort in this. Some people had to wait just like you. Noah waited 120 years as he built a boat. Sarah waited 25 years for a promised child. Moses waited 40 years in the desert as an adult waiting for God to give him another call on his life. From the moment that David was anointed as king, from the moment that David was anointed in his living room by the prophet of God, he had to wait 15 years to become king. Joseph waited unjustly 13 years in prison, all the while believing that God was with him. There was a woman that healed by Jesus just through a touch of his, his clothes. She had suffered for 12 years. The disciples waited in fear for 50 days for the Holy Spirit. Paul waited three days for his sight to be restored, which sounds like an eternity to me. And John waited years in exile for one final revelation. I don't know why it is, and this is, of course, just a smattering and a sampling of the waiting that happens in Scripture, but God has this wait over and over and over again because apparently there are some things that God does in a waiting space that he only does then. Now, there's good news and bad news. The good news is it seems like the waiting times seem to be decreasing. (laughs) That's pretty good, isn't it? The bad news is if you're waiting right now, it'll probably be somewhere between 120 years and three days. (laughs) Somewhere between those times, God will deliver. And so I'm not sure which... Uh, which where, where you'll fall. But waiting is part of the deal. So if you're waiting right now, I have a few words for you that come from every one of these stories in one way or another. 
If you are finding yourself waiting right now, then maybe one of these will hit home for you. And waiting, of course, will allow God to do his thing. One of the first things I think you could do is embrace the waiting. We deeply, culturally, individually, and collectively believe that waiting is avoidable and unnecessary. And until you begin to change your mind about that and embrace the waiting, then you will miss what God is doing. I'm not even remotely suggesting that that will increase your waiting, but it might. I know that God will go to great lengths to teach us about his nature, his love, his mercy, and his grace, and he'll do so relentlessly and with very specific purpose. And so I know that if we can just sit back and embrace the waiting, less hand-wringing, less worry, less anxiety, more open-handed trusting of God, if we can embrace it, then God can get on to other things. And I don't know any of us that are any good at anything that we haven't practiced. And so you should practice waiting. I know, it seems ridiculous, doesn't it? But you should practice waiting. So, when you're at the store, pick the long line. It seems preposterous, doesn't it? But what if you did? What if you decided... I know you drive around town and you avoid all the long red lights. You know how to get from point A to point B. Nobody knows how to do it longer. I mean, I do, but I'm unique that way. Um, Most people know how to do it the quickest way. So go the long way. Not necessarily the scenic way. Go the long way. Pick the long line. And when you do that, when you pick the long line, then you decide, this is what I'm doing. I'm going to practice waiting. I'm going to practice when you find yourself in a circumstance that is, we all encounter, that is specifically called waiting, you know, you, you do this, right? You're in the waiting room. That's why they call it that. You're, you're waiting on the doctor. You're wait, you know, you're, you're going to give him a lecture on his time. He, you were on time. Why is he not on time? All those things. And you are in the waiting room. Decide that you're going to practice waiting with patience. And you decide that I'm not going to distract myself with everything possible so that time moves faster. I'm going to sit in quietness and stillness. And I'm going to do the very thing that Psalm 37 says. Be patient. One translation says be still and wait for the Lord to act. If you want to get better at waiting, you're going to have to practice it. Of course, Maybe it goes without saying, but I need to be reminded to listen for God. God is always speaking. In fact, the psalmist says that the heavens pour forth speech all the time. God is always speaking, always. Sometimes he speaks through a friend. Sometimes he speaks through an enemy. Sometimes he speaks through his word. Sometimes he speaks through the constellations. Sometimes he speaks through the gentle whisper of his spirit, but he's always speaking. And so listen, listen for God. If you're always scrolling, then God has got to find some other way to get your attention. So, listen for him. But then the most important thing to remember is this. While we have a sense that it is unnecessary and avoidable, apparently God does some of his most important, foundational, integral, inside work while we wait. And if that's true, then you should remember this, that God is at work. He is at work. 
He's doing his stuff. He's shaping your heart. He's healing the other side of that relationship that you're desperately wanting to reconcile. He's changing your values. What you thought was important isn't important anymore. God is shaping. He's always at work. Luke 1. Well, we just touched on it, barely. Elizabeth and Zechariah, but of course a lot happens in Luke 1. Gabriel shows up and tells Mary. He tells Mary, uh, you will conceive a child. When Gabriel shows up, Mary's not pregnant. I don't know if you've caught that little detail. She's not pregnant yet. So Gabriel shows up and says, you will conceive a child. More waiting. When? I mean, it wasn't right then. I don't know when. But you have to wait for it, Mary. And then she's pregnant. For how long? Well, I mean, we, we know, about nine months. So more waiting. And then, of course, it's 30 years before Jesus begins his ministry. More waiting. Waiting is central. Well, the moment Mary finds out she's pregnant, Gabriel also says to her, oh, and by the way, your cousin, she's pregnant too. You know, Elizabeth, she's won a child forever and now she's with child. And so the scriptures say there in Luke chapter one that Mary hurried off to the hill country of Judea. And when she did, she went to connect with her cousin who knew something about what it means to wait. Something about what it means to be with child. And she stayed with her there. When she walks in, Elizabeth is six months pregnant. Little John the Baptist is in there. And he does a little pirouette or something, I don't know. He kicks and and he recognizes that he's in the presence of, of Mary. Somehow, God reveals to Elizabeth what's going on. And then this is said from Elizabeth to Mary. Here's what she says. You are blessed because you believed that the Lord would do what he said. Look, whatever you're waiting on, this is the challenge, to believe this. This is what made Mary blessed, that God would fulfill a promise that he made hundreds of years ago, that God would be with her even when she felt alone, that God would mark her path. This is what is hard for you while you wait, that you would believe that God will do what he said he would do, that he loves you, that he will never leave you, that he is with you today, that he will guide you if your hands are open, that he will shape your heart to want what he wants, and he will do so over time. This is the promise of Christmas. Let me pray for you. Lord, we ask that in this moment, we would meet you here with open hands. Lord, there are many listening online and in this room that are waiting on you to move. And it appears, Lord, as if you are distant and silent. It appears to us at times as if you're not working at all. But Lord, we know that appearances can be deceiving and that our feelings can lead us down places that lead us to a lack of trust or doubt or fear. And so we declare today with open hands that we trust you. That you will allow us to see you at work even when it seems like nothing is changing at all. 
And so, Lord, we trust you this Christmas season because in the quietness of a moment, you sent Gabriel to a young woman who was about to experience the largest, most cataclysmic change, not just of her life, but in the history of the world. And so, Lord, this week, as we fuss about our homes, as we bake and cook, and as we engage with family, all the experiences that lead us into the joy and the fun, even frustration and all of the things that make the Christmas season what it is. Lord, we pray that in the quiet moments that we steal away, that we would open our hands to trust you more and that we would name the things that we're waiting for in your presence. And as we name them, Lord, would you change our hearts and shift them towards you, help trust to grow, guide us and lead us as we love for your sake. Use who we are and what we have to express the love that you've given to us to a dark and waiting world. Lord, we pray that you would meet us in this spot now and we open our hands to you now and ask that you would lead us to your love.